going to continue our series in Philippians this evening, so please do turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, and then we're going to read through to chapter 2 and verse 11. So Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to begin to read at verse 27 through to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11. This is God's word to us. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Last week we thought about what does it mean to live for Christ, to say to live as Christ, to die as gain. And this passage flows directly out and from that statement. And as we think about it this evening, we're thinking about how do we live for Jesus and how do we have his mind? How do we have the mind of Jesus? Now I want to tell you a story about a church in Dallas, Dallas, Texas. This is a true story. It was recorded in some local newspapers. There was a church in Dallas and uh, there erupted an almighty row in this church. Uh, and two opposing sides came to loggerheads and they both got lawyers and ended up in the courts uh, and they both were fighting over who had the right to the meeting house. And the judge, he decided, look, this has nothing to do with me. It's up to your denomination to decide, so go back and let them decide. So the denomination, they ruled, and one side got the right to the meeting house, and the other side, well, they weren't pleased, so they decided to go down the road and set up another church. What, what was the cause of this split? What was the cause of all of this trouble? Well, there was a church dinner 
And at the church dinner, one of the elders was sitting beside one of the young people, and one of the young people got a larger slice of ham than the elder. That's the true story. It was recorded in the local newspapers. And from this, an entire church was at each other's throats. One slice of ham, one slice being a little bit bigger than the other. And initially, we may laugh, but under the ridiculousness of this story lies a spiritual cancer that is growing in many of our churches. Verse 3, selfishness, ambition, and conceit. Conceit means pride or vanity or narcissism or self-love. Really helpfully, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that is above you. So proud people look down. And as long as they look down, they cannot see their Lord above them. And sadly, this marks our attitude in church. Phrases like this. He didn't even acknowledge me today. She walked straight past me today. Did you see the way she looked at me? Did you hear what he said or she said about me? Do you think that they are arrogant? Do they deserve to be treated better than what I deserve to be treated? Do they not realize who I am? And we start to rub up against one another. John Calvin helpfully adds, and the little quote will come up on the screen for us, that every man flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast. What is Calvin saying? He's saying that inside each of us, we set ourselves up like our own little kings and our own little queens. And then we we determine that everybody else needs to serve us. And sadly, we carry that into the church. And the result, well, the result, if we carry out our attitude like this, this, if this is our mind, well, then it brings discord. It breaks down relationships. And that's exactly why Paul is writing this. Verse 27 only let your manner of life. It's as if Paul is saying, there's just one thing. There's just one thing that I want to point out to you. And he'll go on in chapter 4 of this letter in verse 2 to mention a specific incident between two people where the disease of pride has started to break the church apart, their selfish ambition festering just below all the smiles and how are you doing today? How's things with you and the family? Are you getting on Okay. And actually, just below the surface, there's a bitterness. As people look at one another, they feel hatred and spite. Somebody said something that rubbed you up the wrong way, and you can't let go of it. And so Paul re- realizes the, the, just the, the devastation that this can bring to a church. Why? Because the church, what is the church meant to be? What are we meant to be here at Hill Street as a church family? We're meant to represent something of Jesus, to live as Christ, to show ourselves to be followers of him. Well, imagine we arrived in here for the first time, and this may be your first time at Hill Street this evening, and I'm glad that this isn't the case, at least on the face of things anyway. Imagine if you arrived into this church at Dallas, and people were at each other's throats. You think, I've got enough trouble. I'm not going to go back there. I've got enough trouble of my own. That's not how God's people are meant to be. That's not what the community of believers are meant to be like. The community of believers are meant to be humble people serving each other just as Christ had served us. And so Paul writes in verse 27, this one thing, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. 
And then he exhorts them, and we're going to look at these passages, or this passage, these few verses next week in more detail. But he exhorts them, verse 27, stand together, strive together, suffer together, struggle together, verse 30, so that they're united externally in their battle with the world, and then they're united internally in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, have the same mind, the same love, be of full accord and of one mind. And Paul then goes on to pen some of these most beautiful words about Jesus. And they reckon that in the early church, some of these words were used as lyrics for hymns or, or as a poem. And so Paul takes us to the, the supreme example that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And not just to back up his argument, although it is that, but it's to show us the very heart of who our Savior is. That if we're saying that we're Christians here tonight, then we must reflect something of Jesus. We must look like our Savior. We, we must also have His mind in ourselves. And so He unfolds that mind for us, and that's what we're going to see. What we're going to see this evening is that we need to live here as humans, as humble heavenly citizens, because we have a humble Savior. We need to live as humble heavenly citizens because we have a humble Savior. So what does it mean to be humble, heavenly citizens? Well, I wonder, have you ever had a fallout with someone? Of course you have. Maybe it's a friend that you went to school with and, or a family member, but lots of time passes, and maybe the bitterness or the, the thing that you've fallen out over, it sort of drifts into the background. And, and someone brings up an old story, and you start to reminisce about old times. Maybe if you're growing up in the country, it's to do about taking a car and maybe racking it around the field and maybe putting it on its roof at the weekend. Uh, I managed to somehow try to bring a tractor and a trailer around the corner of our house and took a lump out of the corner of the house. And I'm sure that's a story that will be told for many years to come. Right? And we tell old stories and we start to reminisce. And soon as we tell these old stories, as we reminisce, we start to forget what's, what's the very thing that we fell out over in the first place. We find common ground and it unites us again. And that's what Paul does here. You see, he starts to reminisce, and this reminiscing soothes and smooths over difficulties that they're having in this little church. Chapter 2, verse 1. He takes them to their salvation experience. So they have encouragement in Christ. What's he trying to say? He's saying that there, there, there's an experience here of salvation in Jesus. You have been united to Jesus. You have been saved by Jesus. You're justified in Jesus. Remember your salvation because your salvation in the church is the one thing that unites you. And then look for this comfort and love that comes from Christ, this unconditional love that has been lavished on you. And then he continues to look at the participation, the fellowship that you have in this Holy Spirit this irrevocable deposit of the Holy Spirit that's working in you and that unites you to one another. And with affection and sympathy, he goes on. This mercy, this divine compassion that has flowed to you from the Father through the Son, his tenderness to us. And so Paul uses this emotionally compelling technique to refresh their memories, to help them see their shared experience and therefore bring in unity where there is disharmony. He realizes that it's the very heart of Jesus, and he wants these followers to recognize that too. He realizes that their witness is on the line. 
And so verse 2, like a parent, complete my joy, Paul says, by being like this. Agree with each other, love one another, form deep spiritual friendships so that you as a church, so that we as a church are not interested about politics or sports or hobbies, but one thing, we're interested in one thing and one thing only, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are united in this place, that we have the same mind, that as we are united to Jesus so too we have his mindset, and that is, one, that is one of humility. So verse 3, live as a transformed community, a very different culture than what is in the world here at Philippi and the world that we live in. The world says you've got to push yourself to the front. You've got to sweet talk your way to the top. You've got to put other people to the side to get ahead. You need to be obsessed with yourself. Instead, verse 3, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Countercultural, a different sort of community with different priorities. Perhaps this evening you're saying to me, John, that sounds like a real struggle, and to be fair, I think that there's maybe some people that'll struggle with that, but it's not me. Well, let's run some diagnostic questions. Do you compete for people's attention and approval here in this place? Do you find it easy or do you find it difficult to rejoice in the success of others? Do you give people in the church family time, genuine time, and listen to them? Are you concerned with the needs of others? Do you think that you're superior to people in this place? Are you threatened by someone else's ability or talent? Do you empower, train, or encourage others? Are we happy to let others have a go? See, friends, as a church family, the enemy loves, loves pride, and he thrives off a lack of humility because then he's able to bring strife and he's able to bring discord and the sweetness, the sweetness that we should taste as we come into this place, as we come in here to rest and to respond to Jesus, to lift high his name, the sweetness of being part of a church family who love one another, who care for one another, who come alongside you in your most difficult moments and say, can I pray for you? Can I serve you? Can I give you a pot of stew or a bowl of soup or an apple tart or whatever it may be? How can I love you? How can I care for you? The enemy loves to take that sweetness out. And there will never be unity. There will never be unity in a church family if the people are not humble. John Stott says this. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride Pride is the greatest enemy, and humility, our greatest friend. And the problem with our hearts is that we don't listen to this. The problem with our hearts is verse 27 through 30 that of chapter 1, that we haven't fought well in the world. Instead, what do we do? Well, we suck up the world's mindset. We adopt the world's mindset, and we carry it through the doors of our church, and we start to implement it here. 
So that mindset that says, step on whoever you need to step on. You don't care about that person because why would you? They don't care about you. You look after number one. Everything turns into a competition at church. How much are we earning? How big is our house? What car is she driving? What labels is he wearing? And if someone is struggling, well, too bad for them. No one ever helped me. No one ever gave me a hand. And if it doesn't impact me directly, then why would I care? Friends, the church is meant to be a different place. Chapter 1 and verse 27, in the Greek, this, this means your life, your heavenly citizenship will be worthy of the gospel. It's, it's flowing out of what it means to live as Christ, that we would be different people. And as we touched upon last week, that this life to live for Christ means the, the death of self. It means the way of the cross. The call is to come the way of the cross. Not to live for selfish ambition. Not to live a life full of pride. But to die to self. And the cross means that Jesus lives and not me. And the cross means that it cuts across all our selfish ambitions. It cuts across all our little kingdoms. And it changes our heart. So if we want to reach our friends and our families, we want to reach the people around here, we want to reflect something of Jesus whenever we meet together, then we must live like this as humble people looking to the interests of others. Because whenever we do, it is countercultural and it is sweet and people see us as different and they want to follow Jesus. Now, how can we do this? This is tough, talking about pride, humility, serving others, putting others ahead of ourselves. This is difficult. This is not our natural disposition. And how can we do it? Well, our second point is this, because we have a humble Savior, because we have a humble Savior. You need to get up out of bed to leave the bins down to the road to make sure they get collected. But why? You need to get charred before you go to school. But why? You can't drive the car above the speed limit. But why? You can't redecorate that room again. But why? Why, why, why? When we're told to do something or not to do something, we immediately tut and we fling our arms up. But why? We always ask the why question. Well, Paul anticipates the, the but why coming from this congregation. And in verse 5, what does he do? He turns our attention directly onto Jesus. Because Jesus is right at the heart of this. It's his very heart this evening that Paul exposes in these beautiful words that will follow. And so as Christians, we want to reflect him. And the essence of his argument is this, that you've got to have his mindset as followers of, of him. You've got to have his mindset. You've got to reflect the mindset of your Savior himself. And that means to follow Jesus, that we will live like Jesus. We will live like he lived. So in other words, if you think tonight it's difficult to act with humility, to prioritize others above ourself, well, Paul says, come and let me show you Jesus. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, it's hard for us this evening to wrap our minds around this, to grasp the depth and, and to plumb the depths of what is going on. But imagine it like this. 
Imagine a royal visit has been announced, and, uh, and the queen is going to come and is going to visit your workplace. And the, as the announcement is made, what does everyone immediately do? Everybody runs for a, a pot of paint and paintbrushes. Everywhere has to be redecorated. The yard has to be brushed. Everything has to be pristine. All the uniforms need to be absolutely immaculate for the arrival of the queen. Nothing is out of place. Well, it comes to the morning of her arrival. And what happens? Well, a sewer out the front of the, of the place that you work, a sewer starts to bubble over. And all of this dirty water starts to flow into the entrance of, of the place that you work. And it's flowing in the exact place that the queen's meant to come in only a few hours. Well, who's going to clean it up? Who are we going to call to clean it up? Well, the first person we're going to go for is the cleaners. The cleaners come out. We don't find anything strange about that. They start to, to mop up this, this dirt and this filthy water. But imagine the CEO of your company. Imagine the CEO who's just bought a thousand pound new suit, decides to go to the cleaner's store and to pull on some overalls. And he gets down or she gets down into this dirt and she starts to mop it up. You would be like, that's, that's wrong. That's below their station. They shouldn't be doing that. The queen's about to arrive. What are they doing? They need to go and prepare. We'd be amazed. Then imagine that the queen herself arrives. And so to speak, she steps off her throne and she puts on her wellies. And I don't know if she owns rubber gloves, but imagine that she owns rubber gloves. And she stoops down into the mire. She kneels into this filthy sewer water and she starts to clean it up. Everyone, everyone would be astounded. What is the queen doing? This is, a, this is an utter act of humility. She's serving us. What is she? This, this isn't right. There's something wrong. And as she would step down into the mire and into the filth, everyone would be astonished. Well, how much more? How much more did Jesus have to forsake to become a man? That illustration doesn't even compare. Whenever we think of who Jesus was, who he really was, we miss this. We, we skirt over this. We, we skate around it, and we don't think about it. But verse 6, he was in the form of God. This doesn't mean that he was a type of God or like God. It means Jesus is God in full majesty, in all of his glory. He is unabridged deity, and in the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus, in him. Verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see, Jesus was equal with God. He is equal with God. The Father and the Son are co-eternal. Within the Godhead, they have the exact same exalted majesty and honor and glory and deity. The Son is the exact imprint of the Father. He proceeds from Him. He is very God of very God infinite in majesty, infinite in glory and splendor. What does Jesus do? He doesn't grab out at this. He doesn't seek to grasp it. But instead, the King of kings and the Lord of lords lets it go. He didn't need to grasp it because it was already his. 
And as we start to see, of, see the elevated position of our Lord and Savior, how far, he has, how, how far He has descended for us to save us, I want us to see the distinction here between the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, and the first Adam right back in the garden. Because you see, the first Adam, He was made in the image of God. And Jesus, He is the very essence of God. The first Adam grasped at equality with God. He wanted to obtain it. And Jesus, he didn't grasp it. It was his right. And instead, he became a man. Adam, he wanted to be exalted. What are we told in this passage? Jesus emptied himself. Adam arrogantly rejected God's word in sinful disobedience. Jesus humbly submitted to God's word in perfect obedience. Adam brought the curse to the world. Jesus took the curse for the world. Adam used his platform. In the garden, he was crowned king over all creation. And what does he do? He uses his platform for self-promotion, for selfish ambition. He eats from the tree to become like God. Jesus Jesus uses his platform as the king of kings to be the one who is humbled and to serve us because he is God. And Adam gave in to the tempter, and Jesus comes to crush the tempter's head. Adam was condemned by the Father, and Jesus was exalted. Verse 10 and verse 11. So we need to know this. That Jesus made himself nothing, the NIV says, or emptied himself. That doesn't mean that he lays aside his deity. He didn't empty himself of being God. He didn't become less than co-eternal, because that would be to break the very Godhead itself. But John 17 gives us insight here. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, in John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, asking that his glory would be restored. And so Jesus divested himself. He laid aside his glory. The one who was rich in glory became poor, taking the form of a servant. And then he enters the shame and the filth of our world, primarily as a servant of the Father, and then to serve us. He places himself at the Father's disposal to come to save people. There's a beautiful image of this all captured in the upper room account in John 13. You you might want to read it later. John 13, what's going on? Well, James and John have just tried to fight and wrestle for who's got the position of of the most power. There's pride at work. And then John 13, 1 through 20 comes. And what happens? The Savior in verse 4 lays aside, lays aside his outer garment. It's an image of him laying aside his glory. It's a visible reenacting of it. And what does he do? He stoops down and he washes the disciples' feet. This is an act so disgusting, so so low in this society that even a Hebrew slave couldn't be ordered to wash people's feet. And the disciples are speechless. Here's the Lord of the universe. And he's washing his followers' feet. And Jesus will stoop lower He'll stoop into the grave itself. Why? To serve you and to serve me salvation. The one who Colossians says holds the whole world in his hands, descended to earth, 
descended, born in the likeness of men, descended to death, descended into the tomb before being exalted by the Father, and now he sits at the right hand, his work complete. Verse 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because he has been obedient, obedient unto death, death on a cross. So the Father has then exalted him that at every at his name, every tongue will confess him to be Lord. And maybe you're here this evening, or you're watching online, and you're thinking to yourself, all this, all this stuff that you're saying, John, it's really, it, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to live for anybody else's interests. I want to live for my own. I'm out for number one. I want to get on in this world. There's lots of things that I want to achieve and do. And Jesus, well, Jesus is just going to hold me back from that. It's all nonsense. I want to rebel. I want to live my own life. Well, if that is you this evening, you need to know that one day you will bow the knee. One day you will confess Jesus to be Lord. And then you'll be separated from Him for all eternity. Jesus comes to serve, He humbles Himself. He goes to death for you and for me so that this invitation could be extended tonight so that at Jesus' name tonight, you may bend the knee and exalt him, King of kings, Lord of lords, my Savior and my friend. And he says, come and do it tonight. Because at the end of time, every knee will do it. And if you have not repented, then it will be too late. As we close tonight, having the mind of Jesus will transform this church family. If we get this passage, if we understand the very heart of who Jesus is, what he is like, what he has left in heaven, descended here to this world, humbled himself to save us. If we start to understand that and apply it into our hearts, it will change our church family. It will change this church community. But friends, it will be difficult for us When disunity starts to splinter a church family, we must run to this passage. We must run to it and see the example of our Savior, and we must grasp the nettle and sort it out. When we start to grow tired of each other, and we will grow tired of each other in this place. It's what human beings do. Whenever we start to grate on one another, rub up against one another, what do we do? Well, we need to run straight to this passage and see the humility of Jesus himself. And in comparison, our humility is not even, not even worth comparing. And we have our minds lifted in wonder again at our servant king, committed to one another in this place, to serve one another. And that means that we need to be able to say sorry whenever we have hurt people through our pride, if we do say sorry, and we just demonstrate what it means to serve one another, asking each other, how can I practically help you this week? Would you like a meal? Not too many people have probably turned that down. Would you like me to do something for you? Is there something that I can do? Is there a way I can bless you financially? Is there, uh, can I bless you through friendship? Can I lift the phone? Can I ask you, how can I pray for you this week? Can I encourage you in the faith? And no longer then would we think like the world with self-centered eyes. Instead, we would make it all about Jesus in this place. As we read this, and as Paul writes to this little church community in Philippi, 
He wants them to be an authentic, genuine community centered on Jesus, living for Him. But I fear, and this often happens, that whenever mild conveniences, inconveniences come our way, we start to cry out, where is God? Why is He making things so uncomfortable for me? I don't deserve this. And our pride starts to show. I don't deserve it. I'm owed this. I'm owed that. You need to do this. You need to do that for me. You must serve me. You must bend to my will. And in that moment, friends, we need to remember that all that we are owed, all that we are owed is hell. We're not owed heaven. And yet Jesus, the only Son of God, stooped down off his throne and entered the filth and the mire of this world. And not only entered it, but took it upon his own shoulders, your sin and my sin, like that filthy sewer water, and he stepped into it. Why? To bring us to himself so that we would be part of this community, love one another well in this community, and exalt his name so that the Father may get all the glory. To live as Christ, to follow Christ, is to have his mind. What a God we have. This is our God. This is the servant king. And he calls us now to come and to follow him, to die to self, to lay aside our pride, to humble ourselves and to walk with him. If you're here this evening and you haven't trusted him yet, the servant king, see what he has done. See his invitation and come and follow him. Amen. And may God bless his word to us this evening.